Britain in lockdown to beat the coronavirus, the military called in to build an emergency hospital. This is a perfect task for the armed forces, and particularly uh, the logisticians, the engineers, and those in the uh, medical corps. We meet some of those helping the doctors and nurses fighting the pandemic. British Army soldier is a citizen soldier and is proud to be part of the nation's response to this unprecedented challenge. And could we all have been better prepared? If you are completely unprepared when the crisis occurs, then you will resort to this sort of behaviour that resulted in, in, in a run on supermarkets. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. Our lives have never changed so completely or so suddenly before. The UK is on lockdown, as are citizens of many countries around the world, close to three billion people in total. The threat from the coronavirus pandemic worsens every day and everyone is being called up to help, whether it's by staying at home to keep others safe or, in the case of the military, stepping up to help civilian authorities. Well, earlier this week, the Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced the forces would have one especially big job to do, converting a giant exhibition centre in London into a temporary hospital. The NHS Nightingale Hospital will comprise two wards, each of 2,000 people. With the help of the military and with NHS clinicians, we will make sure that we have the capacity that we need so that everyone can get the support they need. Well, our reporter James Hurst has been to the Excel Centre where work to create this giant hospital is now underway. It is pretty eerily quiet in the area of London's Docklands around the Excel Centre. Outside, we've seen just a few people running past and a couple of people in military uniform. But we are told inside dozens of military planners and engineers are working against the clock to turn this huge 100,000 square metre convention centre into a field hospital where up to 4,000 people could be treated at any one time. The main military part of this job is the conversion of this convention centre into a field hospital but we're also told that when it comes to the clinical job there will be military medics working alongside the majority NHS counterparts staffing the Nightingale Hospital and we also know that this may be just the first in a series of field hospitals that the army is asked to get up and running. The BBC reports that the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has told it that uh, they are looking at other potential sites. And the NEC in Birmingham says it stands ready to be turned into a field hospital if called on. Well, former Chief of the Defence Staff Lord Richards was in charge when the military helped out at the London 2012 Olympics. He told our reporter Rosie Layden the call to help to set up a giant temporary hospital is exactly the kind of thing the military can do. This is a perfect task for the armed forces and particularly uh, the logisticians, the engineers and those in the uh, medical corps and so on that do this as part of their operational role. So uh, unlike some of the things things that the armed forces will be getting involved in in the next number of weeks. This one is absolutely tailor-made and rather good training, apart from anything else. Uh, obviously, it's doing a vital thing for the community at the same time. You were involved in the military effort that went into uh, London's 2012 Olympics. 
Clearly this is on a much bigger scale, but are there any comparisons you can draw? We were asked at very short notice uh, to take on the bulk of the security of the Olympics, and we did it. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be at the, the top of the pyramid at that time, but by using outstanding people all the way down the chain of command, you know, to section commanders who were deploying, uh, making sure they had clear intent and the right orders and the right equipment, this is going to be no different, although the challenge is on a much higher, a much greater scale. But I have to say, this has been going on all through my professional life. I remember as a young officer manning a green goddess, or actually a little, about three of them in my troop, uh, in a fireman's strike. We did that twice. Foot and mouth, more recently, the armed forces have been helping with flood relief operations. I mean, this is absolutely normal. And one of the tasks we're privileged to perform on behalf of the nation. And yet it is very much not normal. This crisis is potentially so much larger than any of those really important taskings that you mention. Well, it is, which is why it is so vital that we do, as we're being asked, which is try to constrain the growth in it and then beat it back down. I mean, this is literally a life and death uh, thing, the sort of thing that we might be doing for different purposes on military operations. So again, I think we're well set and well-trained uh, to do the right thing. Uh, there's another area I, I would quickly like to mention, that is making sure that we look after our families uh, while this goes on, because, you know, many of those wives, mainly it's wives, who now often have a job, they will be now left at home with their children, perhaps, while their husbands or their spouse uh, goes off to do the things we've just been talking about. Uh, we must make sure that they're looked after as well. Do you think that nationally we've got this right? Are we doing enough at the right time? I was worried, if I'm frank, that we were a bit behind the power curve. Um, there's a great military adage, which is to seize and maintain the initiative. I think uh, at one stage we might have been a bit uh, slow off the mark. It's very, very difficult. I didn't have access to all the information. We're all now quite clear that we are doing the right thing. We must get fully behind our political leaders, most importantly the Prime Minister. Uh, and I'm sure that we, the armed forces, uh, who are ultimately the nation's reserve, if you like, and we can turn our hands to virtually anything because of our training and instincts and our leadership and command and control and proper ways of, of, of looking at novel issues and then uh, coming up with good solutions. All those skills are going to be really badly needed by our country over the next number of months. Uh, this is not going to go away in a hurry. Uh, and we're in in for the long haul, but there's no better organisation in all that you know to help than the armed forces. That was Lord Richards talking to Rosie Laden. Well, joining me now is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. A uh, Christopher, an extraordinary week all round, and the military very quickly being called on to help. Yeah, um, the most important part of this, of course, is that the, what the military does anyway as a job is fix things. Uh, it can fix a war, it can fix a social uh, discrepancy in society or whatever. But we've got to also remember that this is an international problem. And an international problem in which the, mili uh, the British military will fit into its part of it, a small part of it, but it's going to be learning all the time from what other people are doing and what makes sense and then what is politically acceptable. Uh, acceptable in as much that, 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 for example, the cabinet says, let's do this now. And I think that's what Lord Richards was, was, was hinting at, is the fact that, that, that sometimes you're not quite sure that you're, that, that you're up with 
what's going on. And that's because that's a political uh, situation. It's something which government can only do as much as government can actually do at the time. And sometimes government doesn't know what to be doing next because it hasn't got the resources. And it's not a question of resources in question of uh, a question of equipment. It is in question of thinking things through. And thinking things through is one of the biggest problems that we've seen so far, seen obviously every day, and the military fits in with that. In the meantime, the military just simply gets on with the job of creating these huge uh, field hospitals. Imagine 4,000 4, beds. Where are we going to find the medics to look after 4,000 patients. That's the sort of thing, especially if you're multiplying that by five, which is what the government is planning to do at the moment, having five uh, field hospitals of this size. Do you think actually, Christopher, this kind of experience may actually change the way the military and the politicians communicate? No, I think I think what it might do is is remind it's not so much the politicians in, in it's not a political thing, it's the administrators. We no longer have government. We have the, the finest form of, uh, of being run. We have people who are administering the country at the moment, and that's the important thing to remember. And it's the military, with its experiences and with its way of looking at something which is quite new. You ask a soldier to cross the road, um, and uh, he'll do it in a different way than everybody else. We'll get across there safely. That's the principle, be, uh, what, what he always talks about in the, in the lectures, how to be a soldier. And it's this, when the military go in, especially the army go in, and the uh, different departments, whether it be local authorities, local councils, regional councils, major central government, the army says, why don't you do it this way? Have you thought just, of doing it that way? Just briefly, Christopher, I mean, we've heard about what's happening to the Excel Centre, and it's down to the army to try and do that, potentially in other cities as well. Yeah, probably four or five uh, uh, cities, including uh, in, in the Midlands, in, in Birmingham, in Manchester, uh, and there's another place in, in Newcastle. That's what everybody's talking about at the moment. It's whether you've got the resources to actually sort of set it up, and then once you've set it up, to actually run it. Well, the construction of the Nightingale Hospital isn't the only way the military's been helping the NHS this week. It's also been providing vital protective equipment for the doctors and nurses on the front line. In just 24 hours, the army delivered seven and a half million pieces of kit. Brigadier Phil Prosser, Commander 101 Logistic Brigade, was at St Thomas's Hospital in central London overseeing the delivery there. This is much more than delivering just masks. This is about a demonstration to our amazing NHS that we are standing side by side with them and responding to the, uh, the challenge of our generation. The scale of demand is unprecedented and all we're doing is strengthening the NHS supply chain in order that we can respond as that capacity is required. My normal role is to deliver combat supplies to combat forces in time of war, but we can respond to these challenges and it's great to be stood side by side with our NHS colleagues as we preserve their force and get ready for the challenges ahead. British Army soldier is a citizen soldier and is proud to be part of the nation's response to this unprecedented challenge. There are some tough times ahead and the nation needs to rise together to respond to those times. And the British Army soldier is absolutely proud to be at the front line of that response. Brigadier Phil Prosser there. Well, while the army's been delivering protective kit to hospitals struggling to cope with coronavirus cases, 150 military personnel have started training for another vital role. They're learning how to drive oxygen tankers to help supply the NHS. For SITREP, Kirsty Chambers reports. Just knock it up into third gear because you'll find it a lot better. 
All right, sweet. Let's go then. Behind the wheel of a truck this size takes weeks of training to master, but these soldiers only have a week to prepare, as a lockdown is now in place and restrictions could become tighter in a matter of weeks. But the NHS still need these vital supplies. Colour Sergeant Nick Barber from 1st Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment. Absolutely critical at this stage that we can supply those uh, chemicals to the NHS in order to sustain um, the first aid that's required to casualties as they go to the hospitals. Without the ability to supply the essential chemicals, uh, the oxygen, then there could be a real crisis on, on our hands. This was essentially meant to have been just four weeks worth of training, but that has been condensed down into just one week now. And it's because of how quickly COVID-19 is sweeping through the country. But that means that these soldiers need to be ready in order to transport the oxygen tanks to the NHS. So today's day one, and we were firstly um, asked to prove our abilities at driving the fuel, uh, the tankers, the oxygen supply vehicles. We started off with reversing exercises, and we've already been out on the main uh, motorways and through the, the town centres to test our skills at day one. We will be confidently, hopefully by the Friday, ready to provide those driving skills that's required to supply, yes. It's all in place in case these drivers are to become ill or have to self-isolate. The military will be on hand to step into the role of a driver to replace those that cannot work. Because of the fuel tanker driver strikes in 2012, they've already been able to train on vehicles of a similar size to these, but it's the contents that proves a trickier component to deliver. When you, when you brake without all the baffle plates, the, the liquid can move side to side, so that can uh, affect the vehicle and the steering as well. Lance Corporal Peter Timpson from 42 Commando Royal Marines has had his first lesson on the large vehicles. It's pretty tricky uh, trying to get used to it. Um, they, the instructors say that you need to do it all day to try and get it perfect, but eventually got it in the bay, so it's all right. Just get close to that as you can. Today, it's been crucial for them to learn how to drive these vehicles. Later in the week, they will get experience of taking chemicals into the vehicle and also distribute them to tanks at various locations. Kersey Chambers, Forces News, Carrington. This is Zitrap. Well, across the forces world, the pandemic is having a huge impact. Falkland Island school children who are educated in the UK have faced a wait to get home. They've been given priority access to the South Atlantic Air Bridge, operated by the MOD. This year's Armed Forces Day has been cancelled and in Gibraltar, close to 200 personnel are helping with logistics, planning and delivering food and medicines to residents. Commodore Tim Henry is Commander, British Forces Gibraltar. I think there's a good chance that as the government of Gibraltar starts asking for support, you'll see military going around Gibraltar helping in that endeavour, in logistics, in moving stuff around, in putting manpower where manpower is needed. No guns, not security, not backing up the police, not guarding places. This is about you know, organised manpower to help Gibraltar through this. Well, in the weeks and months ahead, the forces will be seen on Britain's streets in ways we're not used to. But in the Commons, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, insisted there'll be limits to what they do. 
The armed forces are doing an absolutely fantastic job in supporting civilian efforts, for instance, in the NHS on the logistics of delivery of protective equipment uh, and uh, much more. But the armed forces will not be involved in the enforcement of the law. That is for the police. Well, it's a point echoed by General Sir Richard Barons, a former commander, Joint Forces Command. A soldier with his weapon is not something British society likes to see on on their own streets. But, but using armed service personnel to guard things like nuclear power stations or key parts of our critical national infrastructure in order to release policemen to go and do community-facing tasks, that's, I think, a, a pretty good use of, of the armed forces. Using the armed forces as the tip of the government's spear at the point of greatest need to bring help where it's really needed, people will always welcome that as long as it's not armed and as soon as some semblance of normality is restored, the Army, Navy, Air Force hand over back to the, the civil authorities. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still with me. Um, Christopher, it's a fine balance to keep, isn't it, between the military and civilian authorities? Well, it is, but you remember you, all the time the military remember a simple thing. The military is there as an aid to the civil power an aid to the civil power. In other words, we're here, we, we actually know how to do certain things, we can do certain things rather quickly, and we can do them rather well. And that's what they do. And when you no longer lead, return to barracks. And it's as simple as that. And at events like the Olympics or during flooding, the public's generally very welcoming of the forces, but can that sustain for a much longer period? I think it probably can, and I think it probably will sustain much longer than people think. The public are not reassured at the moment of what's going on. They don't know what happens next. They don't even know what happens tomorrow. The military guys in uniform, mostly young men in uniform, they're reassuring. And the evidence that we have from past times, including the Olympics, is that the public actually likes them. And somebody was saying that if a guy, a Royal Marine corporal, leans into your motor car and says, do you mind turning left? You just turn left because he probably think he's, he knows what he's talking about. What do you think the effect of those kind of pictures we saw this week w will be of, of those deliveries to St Thomas's Hospital, seeing the military in action like that? Is it simply reassurance and effective use of the military? Yeah, if somebody says to me that the military who do this thing for a living, who set, set up things for a living, who go into a, a, an operation and can they actually say to even government, I, we see the problem, have you thought of doing it this way? There is a reassurance that the military probably know what they're doing because they're organized the whole thing is organized the people are organized they have an authority and i think that that's one of the things that the public will do rather well with at this present time the majority of people will never see the military exercise in this operation uh, because they'll be doing the sort of things that are largely background like you know you set up a hospital you simply deliver things you deliver things that are needed at midnight to another hospital whether it's equipment or even medicines. And this is what the military do. They go in, they're very quiet, they are there. And people, I think, rather pleased to see and reassured to see uh, people in uniform doing it. The coronavirus pandemic has had any number of consequences across all areas of life. Government support for veterans is being affected. The Veterans UK helpline is now email only. And a host of military charities are wondering what a prolonged shutdown means for them. Ed Parker is the chief executive of Walking with the Wounded. He spoke to Sean Greszczek. Crucially, we, we can no longer see our our clients on a face-to-face -face basis, which is um, how we deliver a lot of our care. Um, so as a result of that, we've had to uh, adapt to how we're going to be uh, providing that support. And now everything is being done 
on a digital and a tele basis. So is that similar to this interview, lots of face-to-face -face, uh, virtual chats with people to make sure they're OK? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually a little bit more than making sure they're OK. We, we've still got a care programme that we have to deliver. And so it's ensuring that our frontline staff have the, the tools in place to be able to do that. And our clients are aware of these changes that are being made to how they're going to receive that support. So how are they providing care and what sort of care do, do they need to get to the people that use your services? We focus on a small number of areas working with some of the most complex, some of the most vulnerable individuals. We are working around their mental health. We are supporting their wider needs by integrating those into uh, our partner organisations. And we also provide an, an employment uh, programme. All of these are, are verbal skills. All of these are about how we engage with the individual. And so this is not something that should really miss a heartbeat. We should still be able to continue to provide this care, but just we all need to be aware it's being delivered in a slightly different way. And in terms of funding, how concerned are you about that? When I would imagine a lot of what you deal will, will no doubt rely on fundraising activities. That's probably right now our biggest, uh, our biggest single challenge. Uh, and it is something that we are uh, looking into how we mitigate that risk. You know, we, we rely on, like every organisation, we rely on a couple of quite big events every year. Two of our three big events have just been delayed. The quantum of that is probably around about £600,000. So we've got to look to see how we adjust to that. I am relatively confident that there's a, a really positive mindset within the whole community at the moment that we have to look to alternatives. And I think that goes very much into the funding community as well. If you can't get that financial support, how much longer could you continue? Oh, we'll be here. We'll be here at the end of this. Don't, don't worry about that. But it's, it's going to be hard and we will have to make some very tough decisions. Our major cost is our people. And so we would have to take actions around what we're paying people. We would have to, to look and see how much we, we could take away from that to, to, keep, the, to keep the front line going. But uh, we'll be here. Ed Parker from Walking With The Wounded there. Well, it's fair to say people weren't prepared for this pandemic. Just look at the supermarket shelves stripped bare, the panic buying of toilet rolls and eggs. The military, by contrast, is meant to be ready for unexpected events. But even so, this crisis is likely to test the forces to the limit. Elizabeth Braw leads the Modern Deterrence Project at the Royal United Services Institute. She told Paul Osborne the coronavirus could highlight how thinly stretched our military is. It's fantastic that the armed forces are able to help out with this crisis. The risk we run in, in always turning to the armed forces when we have some sort of crisis is that we get complacent, we get used to always being able to turn to the armed forces, especially the army, when we're in a pinch. And that's fine when everything else is quiet, but what if the armed forces are needed elsewhere for a conflict in another country or even in this country? That's a situation when it wouldn't be possible to, to just turn to the armed forces to, to, uh, for help with delivery of, of medical supplies. Should we be worried about the potential that another country may try to exploit all this confusion? I absolutely think so. It's one of my biggest concerns at the moment. So we are all consumed across the West with COVID-19. 
But that doesn't mean that everything else is quiet. We do have adversaries. We have adversaries who are uh, perfectly capable of attacking us, not just through kinetic means, by, but by other means as well. And they are very innovative, as we have seen. So all of those aggressive acts uh, don't go away just because we have uh, a virus outbreak. And in fact, our adversaries can exploit our distraction uh, by the virus to use aggression against us, either in our countries uh, or elsewhere, and either through kinetic means or, or non-kinetic means. It raises an issue that's been talked about for years, how prepared a civilian population is for a crisis of some sort. But you never expect one to manifest in the way this one has. No, that's right. And the thing about crisis is that they seem completely unlikely until they happen, and then it's too late. That's the problem that uh, this country has, for example. I think it has been too shielded from geopolitical conflict to realize that actually a national effort is needed in, in crises. Uh, countries that are closer to Russia have a bit more appreciation for the fact that a conflict can come in different shapes and, and forms and uh, the whole country needs to be prepared. Let's talk a little bit about Sweden because a couple of years ago the government there did try to talk to the population about being prepared for emergencies. That was the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency which is the gold standard among civil contingencies agencies. It released a, a leaflet called If Crisis or War Comes, and it was based on a, an old uh, Cold War leaflet that the Swedish government used to put out back during the Cold War. It was called If War Comes. The leaflet was updated, and, and in its new version, it's called If Crisis or War Comes. The civil contingencies agency in Sweden uh, wrote this brochure with very uh, easy to understand points and instructions, bullet point format, and sent the brochure to every household in the country. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with UK government officials in a relevant part of the government, and I proposed to them that the UK could do something similar. And the response I got was, no, or they would panic. Well, <laughs> as it happened, the crisis occurred and people panicked as a result of the crisis. I think if people are to panic, it's better to panic before there is a crisis and, and get used to the idea that yeah, you need to prepare because if you if you are completely unprepared when the crisis occurs, then you will resort to this sort of behaviour that resulted in 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 a run on supermarkets. That was Elizabeth Braw from Rusi talking to Paul Osborne. Christopher, um, should we have devoted more effort to preparing the population for a potential national emergency? One of the difficulties that that the people that administer the country have is they're not quite sure how you would prepare them because you're not quite sure the detail of the of the emergency and still that is the that is the case you're not how, sure how politically you can you, you you can have a go at this but you're not actually sure how how people will respond and the british government ever since a, a a cold war leaflet that was put out in the united kingdom uh, called protect and survive and this was a, a, to say was what happens if there's a nuclear war uh, ever since then, the British government, all successive British governments, have said no. If we brought that sort of stuff out, people say, are we about to go into this sort of thing? And you were involved in that, weren't you, Christopher? Well, I was in the rewrite. It was, uh, it was, it was put out. And then after the thing in the, in the 1980s, when East-West relations got even tighter, and there was in this country uh, a fear of nuclear war. I mean, CND, for example... Uh, it, it, it grew by something like 150% in a month. Uh, people were so bothered about it. I was in, in part of a team in, in, in invited just to rewrite this. I mean, we had a, a pamphlet which actually said, take off your kitchen door, put it against the wall at an angle and get under. 
we were talking about a nuclear bomb falling on the middle of London or something like that, and that was going to protect somebody. Uh, so just rewrite it, will you? And we wrote it in a, in a normal way, and the people looked at it and said, yes, okay, well, no, we don't want to put that out because it might scare people. Well, scared people sitting reading it under a, a kitchen door, uh, waiting, waiting for a bomb to, bomb to happen. But there are things that you can't do, and you can't get people doing anything in response until they say, what should we be doing? It's at that point when government has to come out with the pamphlet, the leaflet, or just the public statement. But getting that balance right between making people aware of the risks and scaring them, it's, it's very hard to do, isn't it? It is. It's not only very hard to do it, you've got to understand the different society we live now uh, in the United Kingdom especially, and to some extent the United States, but the different society here, which everybody has a different aspect. You have regional aspects of what can be done, what suspicions there are, how people trust government, how people trust. And it's only when you start getting figures like how many people died in the past week from this virus that is the sort of thing that actually sort of gears people up. And in the meantime, you what you get uh, you 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 get the outside sources. I've noticed the defence minister, one of the defence ministers, uh, uh, James Heapy, at the moment, he's using his Twitter account to counter Russian uh, false news, fake news stories about this whole about the whole virus thing in the United Kingdom. Interesting, isn't it? Um, we'll have more to talk about on this as the weeks go forward. And that is it for this week. Thanks to Christopher and to all of our contributors. Don't forget there's more on the military response to the coronavirus outbreak at forces.net slash news. And you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future. For now, though, thanks for listening. I'm Kate Chabot. Bye-bye.